Are you ready? Dave Smith's ready. Anyone else? Do you know that listening to a sermon is as much or should be as much an act of worship as singing songs to the Lord? Did you know that? Because, because the danger is you see one as passive and one as active. So when you're singing, it's an active thing, you're engaged. And the danger is you can see listening to a sermon is a passive thing. That's what that guy's doing. I would, I would say this, yes, yes, it's something I'm doing. But it's very much something you're doing as well. The Bible frequently says things like, let he who has ears to hear, hear. There's, some, there's something of an act of hearing, which is an act of worship. And an act of receiving what God is saying, rather than just kind of thinking, well, you know, okay, how long we got to go? Or, you know, thinking about what score you're going to give me out of 10 or whatever else. You should be looking to be powerfully impacted by God and encounter him as we open up his word. You up for that? Yeah. All right, well, we're looking at our series on wisdom. And... Um, the feedback so far has been very positive. We've been hitting some pretty significant stuff. We looked at an overview of wisdom. We looked at the fear of the Lord as the foundation of wisdom. That this isn't some self-help, how to make your life more successful series. This is about honouring Him. It's about building your whole life on the Lord, founding it on Him entirely. There's no little gaps where you do your own little thing. But in, in humility and reverent awe, we 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 tremble before Him and build our life according to what. He said, it's the fear of the Lord. We've looked at um, uh, how to, uh, we looked at friends, friendship, how to be wise in that area. We've looked at parents, how to be wise in that area. Sexual purity, how to be wise in that area. Last week, anger, unrighteous anger, righteous anger. This week, the workplace. Next week, authority. Then we start a new series, God willing. So we're looking at the workplace. Most people spend about 70,000 hours at work during their life. Okay? 70,000. So it's worth kind of getting a feel for what does God have to say about work and about our attitude to work. Uh, otherwise, you can tend to just kind of go through it, head down, try and get through it. I'm also going to be um, obviously referring to those of you that are between jobs uh, today or unemployed because you are between jobs. And so you want to get your head straight on it so that when that job comes, you're able to work in a way that is glorifying to God, wise and worshipful. I'm also speaking to those of you that are in unpaid work, either voluntary work or housewives or whatever, anything that is unpaid, is ex- the principles here are the same. Now I would say this, my observation is, is that people have very different attitudes to work. Different people, different attitudes. On a recent survey, uh, they find that 4% of people in IT were highly engaged. I'm sure Hazel was part of that 4%, where is he? But 96% not highly engaged. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Reading another survey on uh, should you enjoy your job uh, or or is it it possible to find a job you can enjoy online? Uh, The very different um, opinions on that, but something that came through consistently was this, bosses are a problem. Okay, so frequently people saying, you know, in my whole 20 years of work, I, 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 I've loved it. I've loved, I, I've loved it, though I cannot say the same about my bosses. And that came through a number of times. So obviously that affects things highly. I think for some people, the job is a means to an end. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, uh, it's, work, it's work to live, not live to work. Let's just get this thing done. And really, really in, the back of, in the back of the mind, the dream ticket is to win the lottery. 
uh, which would open up a much more leisurely approach to things, obviously. obviously. So, so that some people, that's the way they approach work. It's got to be done. Let's just get through it. And who knows, maybe something will come along which will get me out of the rat race or whatever. For other people, it's the opposite. Work becomes the very hub of life. And if you like, every strand of their life is in some way connected to work, or even that work becomes the epicenter, if you like. Everything comes out of that. And uh, they just love it. And they're the kind of people that, that dread bank holidays. <laughs> What am I going to do? <laughs> They're sitting into their bed, twiddling their thumbs, waiting for Tuesday. You know, it's that you do get people like that. Uh, you may say you've never met them, um, but they do exist. So, where are we going to begin as we uh, look at this uh, subject? Well, I want to just say one thing to start with, just to help us to grasp the centrality of it. Look around you, literally. <laughs> everything you are looking at is the result of work. Everything. From this microphone, to that ceiling, to the person next to you. Everyone and everything is the result of some work. Either the workmanship of God, or the workmanship of people. It's everywhere. You cannot escape it. As you wake up in the morning, the bed you get out of is the result of someone's work. The floor that you stand on is the result of someone's work. The shower that you switch on is the result of someone's work. And I'm not going to go on because it would get quite predictable. <laughs> but hopefully you're understanding what I'm saying here. The, pr- the productivity, the, the result of work is all around us. And uh, I want us to go back to the beginning, go back to creation. Um, sorry, Dan, great, thank you. Um, let's read together. She's just picking up after the, um, after the six days of creation. God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, this is a very important passage of Scripture. You'll find that most, most of the core things Christians believe come out of the first couple of chapters of Genesis. You can trace it back there. Very, very important. So what do we see here, just keeping this up? Well, really, to start with, we see there was a systematic element of God's work. He, it, it, it followed a program. Now, whether you think it was six literal days or six ages, that's another sermon. The point is today that there was a systematic element to his work. He was going somewhere with it. Not only that, it was joyful. God looks at what he's done and there's a sense of reward, the sense of, and this is very good, it involved joy and a sense of reward. And finally, it was restful. There was a rhythm about it. It wasn't manic. It wasn't crazed. There was no sense in which you look at God and think, man, he just has to work, otherwise he doesn't know what to do. No, day seven, we'll have a rest. Very, very important. There's, there's a systematic order to it. It's orderly, it's joyful and rewarding, and there's a rhythm about it, and it includes rest. So that's God. Now let's look at the first people. Let's read together. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We'll have a look at that word in a moment. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Next passage. The Lord took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord... God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, we're just going to keep that up there for a second. I'm just trying to lay a bit of a, a, bit of a groundwork, a bit of foundation, so you understand what is work about in God's mind, in God's heart. At the very beginning, what was it about? What was it for? Well, Genesis 1 generally gives us the big picture. Genesis 2 generally zooms in. That's a good way of reading the two passages. Genesis 1 is cosmic. Genesis 2, it's like the, 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 the lens goes, and you go in and you get a more detailed kind of approach. And so in Genesis 1, we see it's about subduing the earth. It doesn't sound great, um, especially if you're an environmentalist. What is, you know, hold on, what's going on here? It, the word means to tread down. Why did God say this? Well, imagine that your garden was in a real state. In fact, no one had really looked after it for perhaps 10 years. Or perhaps you moved into a, a new house and everything's great, but the garden, no one's even looked at it, it looks like, for about 10 years. And you need to call a gardener in. What's the first thing that gardener needs to do? Tread it down. <laughs> it's everywhere. It's taller than me. You know, I'm too scared to go out there. You go out there, tread that thing down and pull some stuff up because it's, it's gone crazy. Now, it appears that God's creation, though very good, was not cultivated. That was the man and the woman's job. There was a beauty about it, but if you like, there was a sense in which it wasn't cultivated. God hadn't done that. Don't imagine, please, for a moment, when you imagine God's creation, it's all like little gardens. There was one garden. We'll look at that in a moment. One, one God, the rest of the planet was not cultivated in any way. And so there's an element in which God says, okay, big picture, you're going to fill this whole earth, you're going to tread it down, you're going to pull it up. Why? So that you can do the next stage of gardening, which is what we see in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, these words here, to work it and to keep it, means to dress it, to make it beautiful, to beautify it. And to guard it, to make sure that it remains beautiful, that it doesn't just fall into disrepair. Okay, So there's a sense of making something beautiful and then maintaining it. This is the detailed thing into the garden. That is the idea, you see. And the idea is as they learn to do that in the garden well, then as they multiplied, as they bred, by the way, Matt Med said to me as I went down to the kids' work, talk to them about breeding today. Yes, uh, the reason being that many of our families went only in Daisy and Levi are in the kids club. He said, talk to them about breeding. We need more kids in here. Okay, so now the breeding bit comes in. Um, so the idea is there to multiply and fill the earth to move out, Adam and Eve in the garden, but as they multiply and marry and move out, they, the rest move out of the garden into the world that is not yet cultivated. They beautify it and guard it and keep it. The whole world becomes a garden. And then remember this, that the garden was in fact a temple because the garden was a place where God would come and commune. And so the whole earth becomes a beautified, cultivated garden temple. That was the purpose of God. Big picture, if you like. And that was what their work was about. So they to tread down the chaos. They to nurture the garden and make it a temple. So what is humanity's aim? To replace chaos and disorder with cultivated beauty that God's presence might be encountered. I'll say that again. Humanity's aim is to replace chaos and disorder and wildness, if you like, with cultivated beauty so that God's presence might be encountered. So that God might be seen in it. 
That points to something. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Now let's bring the two together. We've got God's work and we've got Adam and Eve's work here. Bring it together to give us a full, complete picture of work. What do we have? We have rhythm. Six and one. There's a rhythm. Six, work. One, rest. There's authority. The man and the woman are commissioned by God. They are under his authority to subdue, to exercise authority. There is authority in the workplace, as I'm sure most of you are aware. God wants to help us to renew our minds on authority in the workplace. There is beauty and there is order. Rhythm, authority, beauty and order. Now, let's time travel together into work in the 21st century. Should we do that? In the realm of work in 21st century London, we have some good, honest graft, skill, creativity, and productivity. But we also find strikes, unemployment, sexual harassment, exploitation, fraud, gossip, backbiting, dog-eat-dog, workaholism, isolation, promotion pressure, bosses who want their pound of flesh, power-hungry managers, jobs worths, lazy team members, professional skivers, People caught with their hand in the till, unfair dismissals, tribunals, payouts, bullying, butt passing, blame shifting, old boys clubs, glass ceilings, racism, ageism, sexism, those on the minimum wage and those on million pound bonuses, affairs, blackmail, stress, suicides and scandals. What's gone wrong? Something. Something has gone seriously wrong in the workplace. And what does the Christian message have to say right into the middle of it? Because if it's got nothing to say into the middle of that, it's got no place calling itself the good news for the world. Okay? So we're going to try and work this out. We're going to tussle this one through together. How do we get to the bottom of all of these wrongs? These terrible things that happen which ruin people's lives. How do we get to the bottom of it? In fact, not just, not just vocational wrongs, not just wrongs in the workplace. What about cosmic wrongs? Just the, they're just the whole of the universe seems out of kilter. Environmental wrongs, what's happening to the planet. Cultural, cultural wrongs, social wrongs, emotional, intellectual wrongs, where everything just seems kind of skewed and not, we know it's not quite what it ought to be. We get to the bottom of it by recognising that all of those wrongs you can trace back to a devotional wrong. That's the problem. Every wrong I've mentioned, including vocational wrongs in the workplace, can be traced back to a devotional wrong. We have to go back to the garden again. Genesis 3, let's read together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise or like God she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate 
This is the moment where everything goes wrong. But you trace it back to a devotional problem. They were devoted to the Lord. Satan came along and tempted them out of that by putting them into a position where they wanted to substitute themselves for the Lord's place. They looked at it and thought, not only does it look tasty, if we have this, we can be like him and no longer have to answer to him and serve him, even though he's a beautiful master. It's a devotional problem, you see. Their heart was taken away from the Lord. It's so important that we understand this. Because if you don't understand this, you end up trying to fix life by just kind of moving around the peripheries. And you try and sort things out. And you try and throw a bit more money there. And you try and do an, a, a thing that it will help society. And, and all of these things are not bad. I'm sure they are good. But you are really just moving around the fringe. And you are ignoring the heart of the matter, which is a devotional issue. Our devotion to the Lord. We were made with hearts that were to love Him. When that's skewed, everything's skewed. Now you might think, why, was, why are the repercussions so huge through that simple one act? Here's why. Because we, or Adam and Eve, if you like, our parents, were the ones who were created to represent Him to the whole planet. God's plan is mankind. And He's not going back on that. And so he commissioned Adam and Eve to represent him, to take his rule into the earth. When they turned away from that, everything fell. There was a cataclysmic judgment from the Lord on the whole of creation, if you like. And if you want to put things right in the workplace, you have to put things right devotionally. You have to get back to the devotional issue. But I'm afraid it's not as easy as saying, well, let's just start loving God again. Because if I start saying that, something happens in your heart. I say, let's just start loving God again. What do you start saying? Well, why should I? What's he ever done? Well, I don't feel like it today. I felt like it yesterday, but not today. What do I do? And then you might say, well, what does loving, loving God look like? I said, well, it's things like this. It's, it's things like, um, don't cover, you know? When someone's got something you want, and you go, oh, I really want that. Don't do that anymore. Well, it's easier said than done. It was okay until they bought that. Yeah? I was fine with their widescreen TV because I don't like widescreen TVs. Then they bought that car. And I like cars. And now it's a problem. Or I say, well, you know what? Look, okay, here's, here's the deal. Uh, you know, don't commit adultery. So, well, I've never committed adultery and I never would. Okay, well, just to let you know, just so you understand when God says that, what he means is don't look at anyone and lustfully and, and commit adultery in your heart with them. Well, that's ridiculous. Well... That's what God says. Why? Because he searches the heart. And he is most, imp- he is most concerned with your, the heart, which is the seat of your affections. Because out of that flow the rest of your life. You see, it's not as easy as just saying, well, just start loving God again, because we kick against it. There's something in us that doesn't like it, hates it. So what do we do? Praise God, there's some very good news. There's a man. His name is Jesus. And he lived the most perfectly human, the only fully human life that a human has ever lived. He lived his life in perfect devotion to the Father. Do you know what the Bible calls him? The Bible calls him the second Adam. Now you might say, why does the Bible call him that? Here's why. He came with a job to do. Where the first Adam fell and skewed everything for everyone, Jesus came as the second Adam to put it right. And he knew that primarily, what is that? 
devotional. It's about, and so that's why Jesus says things like, I don't say anything unless I hear the Father saying it first. I don't do anything unless I see the Father doing it. And that's why he says things like, I delight to do your will, O God. You see, you think people are amazed by Jesus, aren't they? They're amazed by his miracles. They're amazed by his teaching. They're amazed by the lifestyle he lived. The most amazing thing is the devotion of his heart. He loved his Father. Everything else spilled out from that. The epicenter of the earthquake that was Jesus' life was his devotion to the Father. You see it most beautifully and most tragically in the Garden of Gethsemane where he suddenly begins to realize, not just theoretically, he knew he was going to be crucified, he knew he came to die, but suddenly he begins to experience something of the darkness of what it's going to mean to be crucified in the sense of being separated from his father, uh, what it's going to mean to be judged for the sins of the world, what it's going to, be, what it's going to mean to be the scapegoat for the sin of every human that's ever lived. It begins to dawn on him. And we see, he even says to his disciples, they must have thought, did that just come out of his mouth? He says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. You think, what? did Jesus just say that? What is going on? And he, and he goes and he prays to the Father. And he says, if there's another way, please do it. But then we get this moment. This is the moment. It's in another garden, not Eden, Gethsemane. He's the second Adam. He's back in the garden. And when faced with you know, the temptation to just really bolt, He says, not my will, but yours be done. What a saviour. And as he goes to the cross, he undoes the mistake, the sin of Adam by taking the judgment for sin in his body. He bears the penalty for sin in himself. He takes it into himself willingly, voluntarily, because of his great love for the Father and for us. Not only that, he undoes Adam's inheritance. See, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. You sin, you get something, death. Jesus deals with death on the cross. Why? So sinners, those like you you and me, under the penalty of death, because of our sins, can be released from our sin and released from death and swallowed up into the victory of eternal life in Jesus Christ. He is awesome. He's the second Adam. He fixes it devotionally. And then as a result of that, As those who come into him, the Bible says if you come into Christ, you're a new creation. Your heart of stone is taken out, a heart of flesh is put in, and then suddenly new creation kicks off in you and through you. And so devotionally, there is a new heart. Praise God for the new heart. Amen? Praise God. I do not have to wake up in the morning and say, oh, I've got to do this Jesus thing again, man, alive. When we're going to find some kind of motivation. There's a new heart that beats inside of me that loves Jesus. And it's miraculous. He put it in there. Hallelujah. Didn't have to go and find it, you know, didn't earn it. Praise God. Because if I earn it, then what if I start, you know, what if I have a bad day? Is it got it? No, he put it in there. And it beats in there. And it beats, it cries out, I love the Lord. And it's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as you can imagine, loves God because the Holy Spirit is God. And God loves himself more than anything else. And that's good, not bad, because if God loves something else more than himself, he'd be into idolatry. Praise God, he loves himself more than anything else. Hallelujah. He's the one worthy to be loved more than anything else. So the Spirit of God indwells the heart of those who are joined to Jesus and cries out, I just want to serve and love God. That's the miracle of being born again. And that is what marks this out from any other path. 
system of belief, religion on the planet. This is not about trying your best. Thank God. Thank God. It's about dying with Jesus and being raised into a brand new life. And when the devotional changes internally, everything changes. Vocationally, work-wise, things change. Now, what does redeemed work look like? We're going to look at one verse in the Bible, then we're done. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, we're going to keep that up there. The Ephesians were just like you and me. Most of us here are not Jews. Most of the Ephesians, there was kind of a mix, but a lot of them, they were Gentiles who had become Christians. And so they didn't have the kind of, old, the Old Testament history wasn't their history, if you like. They weren't related to Abraham and Moses. They didn't have that. They came, they came to Christ out of just a background of kind of paganism and all kinds of stuff like this. So they're just kind of like many of us, just kind of, we just come to know Christ and wow, this is amazing. And suddenly we, we kind of spiritually become relatives of Abraham and those guys through faith. But genetically, there's no connection there. We, we, were, just, we were way out in the cold, and God brought us in. Okay? And, the, the, and, 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 and Ephesians 4 and 5 are very practical. looks at everything from anger, bitterness, slander, um, um, uh, selfishness, uh, the way you use y- your speech. And it tackles work. And there's this beautiful verse here. I just want to unpack it. I want to look at, want to look at the first element, no longer still. There is an, always this no longer element to the Christian life. Always. I want to say this, because if we don't say this, there can be a wrong understanding, and it is this. It's like, well, here, I'm living my life, I become a Christian, and what that means is, I draw Jesus into the way I'm living, and I add him in, and what happens is, I just kind of carry on, but there's kind of some blessing going on. There's kind of some kind of vague kind of blessings happening, you know? <laughs> Go to church, and, you know, sort of pray some more and that, and, you know, there's some blessings happening now. No, 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 that is not biblical Christianity, what happens is I'm walking along and I get killed. Okay? I get radically killed. I die with Jesus. I die with him. Crucified with him. Somehow I was there. He died to sin there, I died to sin there. To my baptism, it's vividly, vividly portrayed. I've died and been buried with him and raised up into newness of life. There's now a new me. I look the same, I sound the same, but like I said earlier, I am internally, my moral center has completely changed. And I'm all about Jesus. And people that knew me before don't get it because they're saying, you look the same and you sound the same, but you're really into Jesus now and it's freaky. My friends, this, what has happened? And I had trouble explaining it, because to be honest with you, I hadn't planned it either. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, w- I went on this kind of holiday, I've come back, I oh, know, I'm really into Jesus now. Like, like, kind of like, he's totally my everything now. <laughs> I'm like, man. Right? So it's not just you imbibe Jesus. There's a no longer, okay? There's a no longer. There's a dying and a rising. There's a putting off and a putting on. There's always this in the Christian life. And so Paul says here, who wrote Ephesians Let the thief no longer steal. It applies to the realm of work. So there's two ways. Number one, obviously, don't steal anymore. If you're a professional shoplifter here and you become a Christian, stop it. It doesn't fit with your new life in Christ. Okay? Yeah, it doesn't say that. Maybe that is you. You've stolen for a living. And you're really good at it. That's you. If you become a Christian, stop. If you want to become a Christian, part of that will be stopping. Okay? 
completely turning your back on that kind of behavior. But then there's much more subtle stealing, like stealing hours from work. You can steal hours through taking breaks, the length of breaks you're not entitled to. You're stealing. Let the thief no longer steal. You're playing, maybe you've got a computer job and you're playing games on your computer instead of doing the work on your computer. You're stealing. Stop it. It's sinful. It's unredeemed. You're living the old way. Maybe if you're in a system where it's clocking in and clocking out and you're doing that in a tricky way, a tricksy kind of way, you go and you clock in, then you head off to Starbucks half an hour and then come back. Stop it. You're stealing. You're sinning. You're living the old. Don't do it. It's wrong. It's sinful. The Holy Spirit inside of you will be grieved as you do this. Don't do it. Or maybe stealing bits and bobs. Stationery or little things that go in memory sticks. Well, everyone's at it. Let the thief no longer steal. That's the word of the Lord. But I don't feel bad. Your conscience is seared. Stop it. Then your conscience will become soft again. And then you can begin to, begin to gauge more by what you feel. That's the word of the Lord. It's wrong. It's sinful. You must not do it. Okay? Or maybe there are facets of your job which mean, actually, by the way the very company works and what you do, you're stealing. Maybe your company brings on subcontractors to do some work but then doesn't pay them. Maybe you're the person involved in that. You need to think seriously about that. You can't do well, it's just the way the thing works. I know there is no 100% pure organisation on the planet. I'm aware of that. But what I do know is there is something very different from being involved in something which is flawed, because everything is, and being party to something which is sinful. And you need to be really get some wisdom on this if you're not sure. Let the thief no longer steal. There's a couple of scriptures just to help us so we can read together. Um, Proverbs 11.1, 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight his delight. What does that mean? It's like the person who says, yeah, I'll give you a pound of tomatoes, but they've, they've done their scales, so it's not really a pound. Yeah? It's just a bit less than a pound. God hates that. God sees that and he hates it. He must not be involved in anything that's the equivalent to that. James 4, 5, verse 4 to 5, Behold, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Strong words. The problem there is not that the business, business has done well. The problem there is done well at the expense of paying those who did the work for it. You must not be party to that. Let the thief no longer steal. Secondly, before we, actually before we go on secondly, you might say, can this really be done? Joseph did it really well in Egypt and Daniel in Babylon. Okay? So read the latter chapters of Genesis to read about Joseph and the book of Daniel to find guys, godly guys in the middle of very sinful institutions that, that were very righteous and God honoured them. Though it was not a smooth road. It wasn't, so don't expect a smooth road. Secondly, but rather labour honestly with his hands. Okay, he's not stealing anymore. What do I do? Okay, well I would say this, there is something proactive and energetic that we ought to be doing with our time and our skills. Working is not just a means to an end, it's part of our humanity, it's part of our worship. We are to be extra diligent in the workplace, noted for our care, noted that we do things well, uprightly, diligently, and also noted for the fact that our jobs are not our God. It's part of our worship, but not the object of our worship. Okay? 
Very important. There's some scriptures here that will help us. Proverbs 12, 14 says, um, uh, no, there's one before that, I think. Is there not, Dan? No. No, okay, so that's my fault. No problem. That's fine. Uh, sorry. We'll lump them all together in just a moment. We'll look at those in just a moment, okay? Because I want to cover laziness on this one as well, just to say maybe there are some of you here stressed because of your exams. It could be for two reasons. Number one, you've not understood the fact that all that God requires of you is to do your best. And you're living under someone's expectation for certain grades that are beyond your ability. You just throw that off. God says, just do your best. The other reason why you could be stressed is because you've been lazy and now you're caught out. You've been lazy. You have not, you, you've, you, you, when you should have been working, you haven't been, and now it's all on top of you. This is sinful, and you need to repent of it and break out of that as a pattern of lifestyle. It's part of the old, it's not worshipful. You've procrastinated, you've chosen fleeting pleasure over responsibility, and you're now reaping the reward of that. It's not good at all. There's some scriptures that just inspire us here. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. There is reward in working diligently. Whoever slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Serious stuff. You see a man skillful in his work, he's taken time to develop the skills, he will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Listen to this one. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and I considered it. I looked and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. For those of you on the internet, the scriptures there were Proverbs 10.4, Proverbs 18.9, Proverbs 22.29, and Proverbs 24, verse 30 to 34. There's another very long one I'm not going to go into, but it is up there, Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31, on the most amazing wife in the world. I, 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 I read it and I just, I, they were writing about Davina. I said, man, look, she's in the book. She's in the book. She's in there. I'm telling you, she's in there. But you find a wife like this, you're laughing, okay? And basically, she, she's, she's, a, she's a grafter. Okay. All right. We're not going to, because it's very, very long. So we just put that down for now, okay? So, finally, this is the most radical element of the verse. Ephesians 4, 28, okay? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands. Why? so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is extraordinary. Primarily, a new covenant mentality. Why am I working? Because I want to share. Where's the needy? And we, we, want to just, we want to plug some holes here. There's some poor. I want to help. I want to help. That, that is one of your core motivations as a believer why you should be working. You want to help the needy. That was what the early church was like. This moves us away from just being nice. Yeah, I work hard at my work to being supernatural. You can't do this but by the Holy Spirit. Because the natural inclination without God is to be selfish. No, so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. So as you're earning, you get a pay rise, you think, hallelujah, I can be more help now. Radical. Very, very radical. We can see the early church were like it. If we look at Acts 2 and Acts 4, we can read those together. All who believed together had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They had the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each 
as any had need. This is why we set up Acts 2.45 as a church, a fund where people in the church can pay into, and those of us on the leadership team, we're aware of different needs. We can, we can meet with those who have those needs and, and make sure it's done well and responsibly and go through their budgets and making sure it's not just irresponsible, but actually they need help and help. That's why we set it up. Because you want to be radical like the early church. You want to find ways of distributing out to help those in need. That's why we're helping the Rileys out there in Poland financially. Because they're in need. They, need. they need our help so they can get about God's work over there. That's why we're going to support Matt out in Latvia, the country on the, on the brink, it seems, at times of economic collapse. We need to support the guy so we can establish a church in Riga there to the glory of God. We want to support and get behind it. That's why we give huge thousands to the Brighton offering every year. Why? Well, because the whole idea is that we go and church plant into the poorest parts of the world where we can raise up uh, indigenous communities of believers that can be a blessing to the nations around them. We know we say we're going to invest in that. Why? There's a need there and we're going to fill it. It's not just a handout. It's investing long-term, spiritual, practical, educational, all needs into those communities and societies. It's what we're about. It's what we're about. So I want to end by saying this. I want to just quickly hold up and compare in five brief, genuinely brief sentences difference between unredeemed approach to work and redeemed. Number one, unredeemed, my benefit is the key aim of my work. Redeemed, God's glory is the key aim. I'm going to work today for the glory of God. He has commissioned, created, set me apart to do this. I'm going to do it because it was part of creation before sin came and I'm sure it will be when Jesus returns. There will be work to do. I'm going to do it for his glory. Okay? Number two, I haven't really touched on this, we will do next week when we speak on authority, but anyway, number two, unredeemed, a utilitarian tolerance of those over me in authority. (laughs) Better do it. Redeemed, honouring those over me in authority. They may not be perfect, in fact, they're not. But I'm going to honour them in my heart, why? Because being in authority is very difficult. And some of you managers here and directors here, you will know this. It is difficult making tough calls. No, you can never keep everyone happy. And I want to speak next week into being under authority and exercising authority so we can hit both those things next week. Thirdly, I'm redeemed to make as much money to improve my life. Redeemed to make money so that I can share. Fourthly, because I have to, I'm redeemed. Redeemed because I was created to. Fifthly, for whatever cause pays the most, unredeemed, or redeemed, for whatever cause advances the kingdom most. Think about who I'm working for and what I'm doing. Does this in any way cultivate beauty and point to the glory of God? Or do I need to start looking around for something that will more do that in a more um, clear way? It awakens us to our contribution through the work that we bring. Bring it all back. Thank God there is a desire in our hearts today to do these things. It can only mean that another man came after Adam who was completely devoted to the Father and went all the way for us and rescued us and then caused us to be miraculously born again and set a new heart in us. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Yes. We're going to praise him some more.